Hi everyone, I'm Paul Menig with Business Accelerants. Each session, I try to bring you insights from business people as they deal with the seven forces that need to be aligned and the eight drivers of value in your business. This session, we're gonna be talking about internal processes and especially, we're gonna talk about keeping track of the numbers. With me today is Jeff Cohn. You've probably watched a crime program and heard the phrase, follow the money to figure out what's going on. In my mind, that's what Jeff does. He's a forensic accountant, but I don't think he does work for the police or the FBI. Uh, welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, because I can't really describe what you do well <laughs> enough, uh, why don't you say a bit more about the people you help and how you do it? Sure. Uh, first of all, you know, forensic really means investigative. And so what I do is I characterize myself as investigating white collar or financial type questions and issues that come up in a company. Most of my clients are either criminals or they're um, small businesses who suspect or think there might be a problem in their books and want to know if I can find something or take a look at it. Um, most of the time with the criminal the criminals I help, it's where the defendant's been accused of something by authorities, but they want to know, the, the attorneys want to know, did this person do what they said or what actually happened? So wait a minute, in our justice system, you're innocent until proven guilty. You said they were criminals and then you're investigating. I should say they were, they're alleged criminals. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, we have to be careful about that. No, they're alleged criminals. They've been accused of something. And unfortunately in our system, um, authorities sometimes jump to the gun, jump the gun in finding, you know, finding, uh, uh, deciding something is a crime when in fact, sometimes it's not. So, okay. so the, the, the biggest issue of that that I'm familiar with right now is Carlos Goshen with uh, Nissan and uh, uh, Renault in France. Yes. Uh, being accused of having millions of dollars being going to personal assets. Right. And people covering it up within the organization. Yes. So there he is still an alleged criminal at he this point in time. He is absolutely an alleged criminal. he's in custody. <laughs> he's in custody. And what's really interesting about that is um, what numbers do is they tell a story about what's going on. And stories always can be viewed from different angles. And um, what I often do is come into a situation and say, wait a minute, there, there's that story that could be told about a set of numbers or what happened, the checks that got written. And I come in and say, hey, here's an alternative story that might actually make more sense and try to help everybody understand different parts or different stories about how the numbers, what the numbers actually say. Okay. I know I, uh, it's somewhat related. Uh, Baron Liebman, an organization here in town, that does things on employment law. They hold a breakfast and provide some different mm -hmm. things. And they, one of the questions they said they would answer in this next session they're having is, what can you ask when a person calls in sick? And I say that because it's so easy to get crosswise, crossways <laughs> with our government because the rules are so darn complex that yes. it's hard to understand what is or isn't legal or normally accepted accounting practices. Yes. Yeah, and from my viewpoint, the more regulations, the more complexities that the government introduces, the more you have to rely on outside um, resources, outside expertise to understand, are you meeting the requirements? And to have a backstop to say, I tried to show a good faith effort towards complying with the rules. 
okay. instead of just, you know, out of your own judgment, making a decision. So, okay. So a lot of small businesses that I work with, they can't afford an outside accountant. Uh, I get that. Uh, a lot of the, the volunteer work I do is with people who are too small and they start with QuickBooks right? or worse, a spreadsheet. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and sometimes they're reasonably smart people coming out of the corporate world, but this is their first time doing it themselves. And right. well, they just keep a track of it in a, on a spreadsheet kind of thing. So what's good or bad about using off the shelf software that automatically fills in some blanks for you <laughs> uh, and some other things? Well, let's start off with spreadsheets. Spreadsheets are really good, as I'm sure you know, at doing analysis at trying to do like what if, you know, being able to plug a different number into a formula and seeing what the effect is. What spreadsheets are particularly not good at is storing data, okay? Because you put numbers into a spreadsheet and then, you know, you bring it open another, you know, you open it up a second time and you inadvertently change something in a cell from, you know, and suddenly you're data store, the, the, the data being stored no longer has the integrity. It doesn't, it doesn't actually reflect history. And specialized programs, let's just QuickBooks, such as database programs, they have much better track record in terms of storing data accurately and keeping it stored. So what you don't want to do is use a spreadsheet for something it wasn't designed for, and that is storing critical business data. So many people think of accounting data as what I'd call mission critical to a business. If you lose it, you're in deep doo-doo, they so, say. <laughs> so following up on that, uh, Microsoft's gone to the cloud. Yes. Uh, iCloud. Uh, right. And I use Dropbox and stuff. Is it any better if I store those files in a cloud versus having them on my hard drive? Very good question. Um, storing it in a cloud gives you a second way of having the same information stored in a second place. However, like Dropbox, you change something on your local hard drive, like your spreadsheet, it immediately copies it up to the cloud. Yeah. And unless you understand how to use and it includes those features, it does you don't have a versioning. So you can't go back. And when you have massive amounts of data, let's say you have a hundred thousand rows stored in an Excel spreadsheet and one row's changed, how are you gonna find that? How are you gonna know about it until maybe it's way too late to find out? Mm -hmm. So they're excellent tools, okay, to have the cloud. I love having the cloud and having it as a backup or having it as a redundant way of sharing files, all those things, but it's not a backup, a good backup. You have to have a second system to actually back up your data. Yeah, I, I, simple problems you can do uh, with QuickBooks I've seen too is somebody gave me the results of last year. Yes. Okay, and we took a look at it real quick and we said, no, that's 2017. You know, you gotta change the title at the top. So it turned out, I, for this particular company, I had access to the QuickBooks myself. I went in there and I saw, no, it's not just a matter of the title. You actually ran the numbers for 2017 right. rather than 2018. So I re-ran the numbers and showed them and stuff. And it came down to, I mean, we had to pay taxes and we were, we wow. were doing our, uh, 1099 forms that we have to do for dividends and distributions sure. and stuff at the end of the year. And so it was just a simple mistake from somebody who is knowledgeable, but <laughs> it happens. That's, uh, you're really introducing two interesting topics there. Number one, in a spreadsheet, right? If you 
your title often is typed in. And so it would be easy to have a title on a, an analysis mm -hmm. that didn't reflect the actual data you were presenting. Yes. That's More a problem. So in a spreadsheet. More than so in a spreadsheet. Because in QuickBooks and in program in programs specifically designed to track accounting data, the titles are much more automatically generated right. by the system. Yes. So if you showed me a QuickBooks report that said 2017, I'm gonna on the surface trust that that's probably 2017. Mm -hmm. But you also introduced the very important topic of being skeptical. Whenever you look at financial data analyses, you need to add, you have to have some skepticism and it's way too easy to just, because it's generated by a computer, it has to be right, you know? So that used to be a huge problem. I think is a lot less now, but you always have to apply some skepticism. So Am you, I actually looking at the numbers that I think I'm looking at? You just <laughs> so, gave me justification for all those years of being so detail oriented and <laughs> wanting to make sure the numbers, and actually double checking all the equations and stuff it, like exactly. that. Exactly. And you, you really have to do that. There's a, there was a, one of my most memorable cases was years ago where this, um, you know, it was a litigation situation where the other side had done a calculation but had rounded a critical unit measurement down to like four decimal places, you know, it was a, mm -hmm. you know, a unit. And in fact, because they had rounded it in an inappropriate way, you know, when it was properly expanded out to like 10 decimal places in this case, the damage figure that was eventually identified as the correct number was way different. <laughs> and again, that comes down to it looked right, smelled right, the formulas, everything looked right, except this one rounding error caused yeah. a significant ripple effect down the road and the resulting damages were quite different. <laughs> so um, I segment things now uh, currently for what I'm doing as a, a business coach, business accelerant, right. into companies under a million dollars companies between one and $10 million, right. and then companies above $10 million. Okay. Just because of a little bit of a level of sophistication associated with them. Right. So for instance, I, I talked with a painting contractor yesterday, and you know he's under a million dollars. And there's so many companies under a million dollars. So at what point should a business move from either using a spreadsheet or doing online software themselves to being more professional and having a bookkeeper or an accountant or a CPA? Sure. I would not recommend anybody use a spreadsheet for practically any accounting function because of some of the limitations that I expressed earlier. If you have an extremely simple company, you basically all you need to do is monitor cash flow. I would recommend using um, a very simple accounting program, almost an automated checkbook. So Quicken by Intuit is an mm -hmm. example of that. There's another product out there that I've used called Money Dance, and they basically are really good at tracking what's going on in your checking account and maybe your credit cards. Okay. But And they can do more, but they're not designed for it. Okay. So, you know, if you're a professional, you know, such as I am, I have my own little practice. Um, I don't have any employees. I could probably live with just something to track something that simple because I don't have accounts receivable or not very much, things like that. Um, but once you get into having people owe you money, um, into having to, you know, kind of keep track of how much I owe somebody else, uh, want to revenue, track revenue maybe by different categories, pretty quickly you get into a situation where you need some more sophisticated accounting tools. So if you've got over one person really involved in your business, you probably want to be doing something besides even a money dancer, 
or Quicken. You want to try to be going into using something like QuickBooks, you okay. know, or some type of accounting software. Another thing that brings up, so I'm surprised to hear you say you don't have any accounts receivable. Well, I uh, do, but can I manage it okay. fairly, <laughs> fairly well in my head? Yeah. Okay. For years, I was actually able to do that pretty well, and then I started getting too many clients, and now I got, I had to juggle things, yeah. and I said, I got to have a system. <laughs> okay. All right. But. Um, you said, you know, a cash statement, and that made me think, you know, when I do my QuickBooks, you know, I see the accrual side and I see the cash side. Yes. And as an S corporation, I pay my taxes and everything based on the cash reports, not the Correct. accrual reports. Right. But I like seeing the accrual side for, you know, how I've, I've done some things. Right. When do you make the jump from, or under what circumstances do you make the jump from cash accounting to accrual accounting? Well, cash accounting is what the IRS requires, okay? And it usually ends up in paying less taxes in the current year as a general rule. But it doesn't help you understand how you did performance-wise, okay? And that's why an accrual-based accounting system, which you, you know, Quicken and Quick and Money Dance really don't do. You need to go to a QuickBooks to get to accrual. It, accrual accounting measures your real performance. What did you really earn that year, okay? Um, because what your cash, brought in doesn't represent what you earned that year, except from the IRS's standpoint. Um, how many billable hours, for example, in our profession, you know, did you accrue is really what's going to tell you how much you earned. And that's what you need an accrual accounting system to tell you. <laughs> so. Yeah. so another thing I've noticed, though, is the IRS changed the rules for how you recognize revenue. And a lot of people are trying to move to subscription-based systems. Yes. And you cannot, you get... You get a discount for ordering for a year's subscription, but the company can't recognize that revenue all in one month. They have to put it out over the length right. of the subscription. Is that going to be require an accrual type of accounting then or not? It, not necessarily by itself, because if you're on a subscription and you're receiving so much money a month, then I think the IRS would then say, when you get the cash, that's when you pay the taxes. That's the general IRS principle. Okay. So that by itself wouldn't require you to go to accrual. Um, again, again, the general rule would be if you, if you are trying, if you can't really monitor your performance in your own mind, okay, and you don't, can't kind of keep a good handle on all the things, the balls you got in the air, that's when you need an accounting system to help you keep track of all that stuff, okay? Yeah. And so does that happen at, um, you know, if you have a business generating 100000 a year, probably don't need very sophisticated accounting, but too much over that, you might you need to start thinking about whether you do need an accounting system. Okay. Yeah. Because again, just monitoring how much it is, how many okay. clients you have. You know, if you have one client all the time, it doesn't take as much effort to try to figure it out. But if you have 50 clients that you're juggling, then it's going to take more effort to try and keep track of it all. Okay. So an accounting system. I talk in the seven forces a lot about processes and, and right. accounting is one of those internal yes. processes. Um, my articles of incorporation say how much uh, money I can spend before I have to capitalize something mm -hmm. uh, and a variety of other things. Are, are we talking about when you say a system that there are documents that say what you should do and shouldn't do, such as we were talking briefly about, okay, I take somebody out to dinner to talk business. Is that an entertainment expense? Is that a meal expense? Uh, do I only get to charge, uh, the, uh, claim half of it? Uh, and what, or 
What's a, what's a, an accounting system to you? An accounting system is um, first of all, it's 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 almost always software. Okay, it, you're talking about a software program like QuickBooks that helps you go through and do all the accounting, and at least give you a vehicle to categorize something like a coffee. You know, taking taking a client out for coffee as a appropriate entertainment expense or whatever. You know, however you your system categorizes it. Um, the IRS, of course, has their rules about how to make the judgment call between whether something's a personal or business expense. Um, and personal expenses really should not be in your accounting system or should be classified as something where it's obvious that you are paying for it personally versus business. You don't want to commingle the two mm -hmm. um, as a general rule. Um, documentation uh, can really vary how much because first of all, there can be rules about that you as a business can establish on how you're going to do things such as how much you're going to capital, you know, at what point do you capitalize a computer or something versus expense it. Um, but then the IRS has their sets of rules. So you need to kind of keep mm -hmm. all those in balance. But again, as you get a very simple company, doesn't need a lot of guidance on that. As you get more and more complex a business, it's going to get you need those tools to help you keep track of everything and give you a vehicle to track those type of expenses. And you know, if you realize, oh, I actually put a, a personal expense on a business credit card, you know, I got to figure out how to deal with that yeah. <laughs> and make sure it's accounted for correctly. Um, you don't want the IRS coming in and, and looking at something, looking at what you've deducted for business and finding out that realizing, oh, geez, that, that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so mistakes, that, that probably leads pretty well into this uh, set of questions. So I had a client that had several million dollars a year in sales. Sure. And we were looking at it and um, I was helping them. They were thinking about selling and normally you have to, you know, check things and, and stuff. Right. So, um, I didn't do this, but they uh, ended up finding out that their internal full-time bookkeeper accountant was later found to have been embezzling, which is why they weren't getting the numbers that I was looking at and saying, <laughs> you should be making more money than you're making right. here. You know, what's the deal? So what advice would you give for a company, say under $5 million or under $10 million to avoid somebody getting away with something like that? What kind of signs or red flags would they see mm -hmm. that they would be alert to that kind of a problem and that something's wrong is going on? Well, my first piece of advice I give to all small business people, and really this, um, this advice really ratchets up to just the largest corporation, is basically know who signs the checks. <laughs> if you're a small business person, you should never, ever let anyone sign the checks but you or have access to your bank account. And what, um, what happens is you're a small businessman, okay? You love doing these videos. You love giving advice. You're probably not a great accountant or nor want to be a good accountant. And somebody comes along that says, I'll take care of that for you. I can do this for you and you can go, so you can concentrate on everything else. And at first you start letting them do some of those things because it's really freeing you up to do what you do best. You end up making more money if you hire the right people. The problem is, is that if you're not careful, they start wanting to sign the checks. They want starting to do stuff and take, and you end up delegating too much responsibility to them, delegating things like writing checks, 
And then that becomes literally an invitation to steal. It's like the swimming, the unfenced swimming pool on a hot afternoon. <laughs> so, I, I'm, okay, I, under, I followed that, but I was honestly expecting that you would say that they should be running the books and checking the statements. They should be looking at the profit right. and loss the, and understand what a balance sheet really tells them. They need to And do, look yeah. at the cash flow each yeah. month and as a, a minimum that they should have a CPA independent of that bookkeeper running something right on some all those basis. things are true okay. okay but the first the first rule that a small businessman needs to know is understand what's happening with his cash and what's going on in his bank account if they lose sight of that if they delegate that to somebody else again it becomes an invitation to steal but you do bring up a really good point you got to also understand enough about accounting and have people that you trust and know uh, we'll give you the straight shot on what those accounting numbers mean. Okay, very important. Yeah. Um, you also have to have the skepticism like you just displayed. You as a business owner need to be skeptical that the numbers coming out of your system are in fact accurate. You cannot just trust that they're accurate for um, just because they're on a piece of paper or prepared by somebody that you trust. Okay, you need to be just a little skeptical and if things are not right, if your instincts, your intuition are saying, oh, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. You know, I was expecting to make 100000 this year and I'm only seeing fifty. What's going on? Look into it. Trust your instincts without, mm -hmm. going, um, without going overboard. Okay. And I think it's a really good idea for small business people to have, you know, to not only have their, their tax CPA look at stuff once a year, but maybe to have somebody that's you know, completely independent of your business, come in and spend a few hours just looking at how you're doing things to see if there's a better way to do it. Okay. And what happens is, you know, somebody comes in, takes a look at it, says, oh, what if you did this, you'd be better off, or this is part you're doing wrong. And a little bit of money up front could save you lots of money down the road. I have a client now that um, they lost their bookkeeper and, and the business owner decided he could do it on his own with his daughter. And they got into big trouble because they, you know, in, in well, I've spent hundreds of hours now unraveling a commingling of personal and business expenses in the books. And it's always cheaper to do it, you know, to do stuff uh, preventively or to do things right up front than to try to fix things after the fact. To, to, your, to your point about uh, having the purse strings and who can yes. sign the check and stuff like that reminds me uh, in the uh, early 2000s in the corporate world, where I was mm -hmm. at at Daimler, I was a high-level executive. I had authorization to be able to approve fifty thousand dollars. Right. Um, but by the time I got done with the corporate world, the rules had changed such that I was lucky if I could approve five grand without having a secondary signature right. attached to it. And yet I was responsible for an internal $10 million budget wow. uh, yes. plus all the external suppliers that were working for me. And I, yeah. I basically couldn't buy a laptop computer without right. somebody approving it beyond yeah. me. That, that brings up one of the core things that we're taught in accounting. And that has to do with what's called internal controls. That is, are things going, do we have controls within an organization that make sure things cannot be uh, falsified, embezzlement, things like that without at least two people being involved mm -hmm. okay and so what we do is we have the, the systems of internal control and we try to figure out 
what I would do if I went into a small company is, or even Daimler, you know, Daimler, is are there incompatible functions going on where there should be two people involved? So classic example is the person who writes the checks and signs the checks shouldn't be doing the bank reconciliations, mm. all right? Okay. okay, because that way they could write the check and you know basically then falsify or obscure the reconciliate you know, when they do the bank reconciliation, obscure it, and basically be able to get away with it without anybody really being able to tell. And especially if they also can then make the entries in the books, then they can pretty well hide it because they all this authority has been given to one person. So what we want to do, what what Damler was doing in your case is trying to say, yes. Paul, you have authority to spend 50000 but we need more than one person involved in that decision. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, yeah. and that, you know, generally is a really good idea. But you also have to find the balance between um, being efficient, you know, and yeah. letting 5, people 000, get their job done. made it a little bit challenging. <laughs> exactly. You know, done. then you're, you're spending so much time trying to convince somebody to spend 5000 that it, it gets It was less blown. trying to convince them to spend the $5,000. Yeah. It was just getting an audience with them with all right. the meetings you have yes. in the corporate world. Yeah. The other, I had this case one time we were dealing with, um, you know, I was working in a CPA firm. We were doing litigation and uh, we were dealing with a governmental agency and they were happy they didn't care how many hours we were spending on the job. But when we asked for like a thousand dollars to spend, you know, an expense to buy, I think it was some software or something like that. They made us spend hours and hours and hours justifying this thousand mm -hmm. yeah. dollars where our fees far exceeded the amount. <laughs> and you're just kind of going crazy. And I bring that up because it's easy to try to replace rules such as the $5,000 number with common sense. And you always got to be alert to that tension that you want to have, you know, you want to be reasonable, but not get in the way of getting business done too. So, okay. so, so let's take this idea of co-mingling and authority for doing things to a whole different level. Sure. Uh, for a moment. So small business owners often are in a situation where they're short of cash in their business. Right. And they have to write themselves a loan in order to get something done. <laughs> and you know, I take that even up to a company that, you know, I well know, Sears Roebuck and Company. Sure. And, you know, the head of Sears loaned himself money, basically, and now got approval through the courts to buy the company out of bankruptcy, I think for the second time now. Yes. <laughs> uh, talk about co-mingling and things. So for the smaller business owners who are in a position where they don't have a 500000 or $2 million or $50 million right. line of credit yes. with a company that they can afford to have right now, but they're, they're literally, okay, I need $5,000, I'll take it out of the bank, give it to myself, got to pay it back. Uh, you know, do they have to have a loan agreement? Do they, sure. What, what, did, what, do you, what do you, can you help us with, with uh, having to loan yourself <laughs> money to your business? It's obviously probably the fastest way to inject money into your business if you have some personally. Okay. The big question that you really have to ask yourself is, am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Okay. Is it just a quick fix and easier to do than just going to the bank and getting the money? Or is it more of a problem with the, your actual, your systems? Is it a problem with your core business? Now the Sears fellow, for example, had to be looking, should have been looking at it very carefully. Am I supporting basically a failed business? And if I am, I'm, I might be putting bad money after, you know, I mean, good money after bad. <laughs> um, 
So I would say to a business owner who's deba debating whether they should inject more money in the business is number one, is there a good reason why you're not going to the bank? And there are good reasons not to go to the bank, the paperwork, the headaches and all that. But if you're doing it to avoid a reasonable scrutiny of what your operations are doing, whether you have a viable business, then that's a mistake. So if I would probably suggest to, you know, a small business owner thinking of doing, uh, putting a sizable amount, say 50, $100,000 into a business, um, run it by a friendly CPA, run it by a friendly banker that you, you know, get to know a banker and just ask him, does this make sense? Am I not, am I not looking at this reasonably and objectively that this is a wise choice? Okay. And that I'm only supporting a short-term cash flow problem or that we really need to invest in this product or this uh, equipment, for example, to take us to the next level to, to, or to sustain our profitability. You got to have somebody, you want to have somebody that can come alongside you and help you objectively look at what you're doing and why you're doing it. And the problem again, it's hard as a small business owner to look at your own business as objectively as you should. <laughs> one, of, one of the simple things that I find I, I fight with people is they'll tell me, well, we made X amount of money last year. And the first thing I'll ask me, is that the revenue you had? Yes. Or did you make, you know, right. <laughs> I hope you're not printing the money. Yeah. In which case you really make the money. Right. But people, <laughs> small business owners, the language they use is all revenue and they don't really always understand bottom line. Yeah. Many people don't understand the bottom line. And I don't know how many times I've heard somebody said, I made X last year, I made a hundred thousand. And I, and my first question is, was that a hundred thousand dollars that came in the door or a hundred thousand dollars that was yeah. left over after you paid your expenses? Okay. After, you know, what is that made a hundred thousand can be mean very many things. And that's why accountants are particularly concerned about the proper use of terms. Yeah. So I then say, is that revenue of a hundred thousand or is it net income for a hundred thousand of a hundred thousand? What? Cause they're very different numbers. <laughs> yeah. Very, very, very different. Especially for, you know, when I deal with uh, people who are trying to value a business and somebody's trying to understand what's the seller's yes. discretionary cash or what's the earnings before interest right. taxes, depreciation and amortization. Right. Um, and it gets very confusing to people when they say, well, we made X amount, so we should get three times revenue uh, or whatever for right. a, a sale price. And you find out that, well, you're not taking a salary, uh, you're, you're right. doing this and you know, your EBITDA is negative. <laughs> right. And also is that, is that cash flow coming in or is it what you earned? Okay. By doing work for customers and is there a problem with collecting the money that you've Pay, you've, you've earned, but you haven't billed yet, you know, or you've billed it and you haven't gotten paid for it yet, you know? Yeah. So suddenly, you know, if you have one, one customer that's 25% of your business, right? And you're owed a sizable amount at the end of the year. Well, is that income this year or not? It can be considered income from an accrual standpoint, but maybe not from a cash flow standpoint. So make sure you, if you're talking about revenues, if you're talking about financial performance that you understand you, that you're, you have a meeting of the mind of what those terms mean. <laughs> talking about meanings of terms and stuff and, and accounts receivable and getting paid. So large corporations intentionally drag out when they pay their suppliers. Sure. So I have, I have some clients who have now reached the point where they hire a factoring company to oh, offer okay. me a cash infusion 
um, you know, let's say I bill them for $100,000. Well, we'll give you $95,000 right now if, you know, and we'll worry about getting the money from the company later. Yeah. Let's say I do that. Where do I record that $5,000 that I didn't get? Do I re-invoice them for $95,000 or? So you're talking about, yeah, you're talking about the situation where you're owed 100,000. Yeah. And the factoring company will give you 95,000 today and keep the, uh, the, the keep final, the 5, keep is... the 5,000. Well, that 5,000 becomes essentially, you might characterize it as an expensive collection. Okay. Okay. So when you actually get the 95, so you're going to, first of all, record the 100,000 as yeah, a receivable. I've invoiced them, right. You've invoiced them. 30 days received. later, 60 right. days later, somebody offers right. me some cash. So you're going to get the 95,000 in. Right. And yeah. that goes in your bank account. Now you got the cash. Right. You're going to reduce your accounts receivable by 95, but you still got this five left over. Yeah. But you're never going to collect that five. So right. it really becomes an expense. You have to reduce your receivables by the five and charge an expense account. Um, it's basically what you're talking is an analogous to if you take credit cards in your business. Yeah. You're, you're billing a customer $100. You're only going to get 97 if it's 3% oh, or whatever okay. number. All right. You're so only going to get yeah. $5,000 just as my credit card fee or something yes. like that. Right. I'd have a separate account to, right. <clears throat> to keep track of that as opposed to calling it a right. bad debt or something. But I will add, if you are using factoring, I would challenge you to say, well, what other ways could I finance those receivables that might cost less? Factoring is a relatively expensive financing mechanism. Mm -hmm. That's where a line of credit from the bank can be really helpful. Yeah. Or offering discounts to your customers to pay early. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that many people don't understand is the effective interest rate can be quite beneficial to making those payments early or encouraging people to make the payments. I mean, if you drag out, you know, essentially the there's an imputed interest when you offer an early payment discount. Yeah. Well, and that that's why all the software-based software as a service companies will offer you a 10% discount for a year subscription versus paying monthly. Exactly. Because money up front is better than money tomorrow. Absolutely. <laughs> it's always better to have the cash. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, wanted to, I wanted to add, you know, one of the issues that comes up or that I think a lot of business owners don't realize when it comes to cash and embezzlement issues is, you know, there's two ways that a company loses cash. Number one is by going out the door when it shouldn't. Okay. That's just, that's pure embezzlement, as you mm -hmm. might say. The other thing is, is all the money that I'm supposed to be collecting, is it actually coming in the door? So it's both going out and coming in because mm -hmm. if somebody is taking off with your, you know, is, is taking accounts receivable payments, depositing it into a phantom bank account, and then writing credit memos against that, against the receivables to write them off, Ooh. you're being, okay. you're, you're having theft by money never showing up that was supposed to show up. Okay. And I'll, let me also add one of the things, if you have a cash intensive business, if you receive a lot of cash, be really alert to how you're handling that cash and how do you know that every dollar coming in the door actually gets into your bank account. I've seen some situations where the control over cash, the handling of cash coming in the door was shockingly lax and trusting of one individual and suddenly you realize maybe they're skimming numbers mm -hmm. off the top, you know, so okay. be alert to that. <laughs> All right. So, um, as we close, first, sure. first, is there something you want to mention that I forgot to ask about? I think you've covered most of the most of the points. Um, I think the skepticism is really good. The in and out. Let's see. Um, oh, 
Red flags. Let's talk just a minute about red flags. If you're a small business owner and you're starting to go, when I wonder the things aren't coming in as much as I, as much money as not, I'm not making as much money as I somehow think I should be. And that's a really good thing to be asking. Am I making all the money I should? And you start going, is there a problem? Well, there's red flags that are really obvious, but you know, that, you know, we'll get to that in a minute, but don't hesitate to call somebody like me and okay. And just take a look at things. And just from a, you know, even from a high level view, you know, I might be able to identify something relatively inexpensive. that might really help you at least give you assurance that things are right or not right or something. But if you have some of the red flags that, you know, we typically see is an accountant that is overly aggressive about trying to take on all these responsibilities about signing checks and things like that. And, um, look at the lifestyle of that accountant. Are they, if they're driving a Ferrari around on, on 50,000 year salary, well, you know, there might be a problem, you know, and I'm, I'm, that's an extreme, but on the other hand, think about it, you know, is there a good explanation for their lifestyle? And, you know, if they say, oh yeah, I, I inherited a bunch of money from my grandmother, you know, okay, that might be true, but you know, let's be skeptical <laughs> about it just a little bit. Um, yes. You know, do they never take vacations? Do they get defensive when you ask them a question about the books? Ah, okay. Do they say, what, you don't trust me? If they start using words like that, you know, um, then you want to be, you know, it should be setting off warning flags. A good bookkeeper, a good accountant, is always going to want to educate you as a business owner about what the information means and how you can use it to be more successful in your business. The person who is um, questionable is going to want to hide it and say, trust me, you don't, you don't want to look too closely at this. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, it, you know, if, it, if it, I, it reminds me of, you know, <laughs> any one of us who've had kids, you know, when they, when they, they don't want you in their room, when right. they don't want you to inspect their books or something, you know, there's something exactly. wrong. Exactly. That, that's, that's a great part, point, Paul, you know, just use the same things. If you're, if you're feeling intimidated or scared or, you know, or not, don't think your CPA or your bookkeeper, especially is, um, being, you know, willing to, there to serve you, then, you know, maybe it's time for a change. Yeah. And, um, you know, do not ever let the bookkeeper intimidate you. And unfortunately that happens way too often. I have a feeling. So. Yeah. I can understand that. Yes. So as we close, I'm yes. going to guess that there's going to be a few people that will want to contact you to learn more sure. or to possibly engage your services and have I, I you come in and take yeah. a look at their books. So right. how do they reach you? Well, first of all, my, you know, always, the phone's always there. Uh, Jeff, I mean, my, well, my phone number is 503-312-7090. I welcome calls and I just, I'm more than happy to chat with somebody for, you know, for half hour to an hour to see whether what I do is, is a good match for what they need. Um, also, my email is jeff at conegroup.com. That's J-E-F-F at C-O-N-E-G-R-O-U-P.com. And of course, my website is www.conegroup.com. All right. That makes so, it pretty easy for people to thanks. be able to contact with you. Uh, thank you, everybody, for the time. And Jeff, thank you very much. Thank you.